Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. Welcome, gentlemen. Um, we've got quite a varied uh, array of uh, questions, and we're going to start with our first one, which comes from Ian Walton in London. Um, and Ian though, works with other friends of him, his, uh, who are Muslim. And during this, their sort of various discussions, and they have had discussions about lots of contemporary issues, the role of faith in today's world. One of the challenges, I suppose, which Ian's sort of focused in on is where we are today in terms of that balance between openness in society vis-a-vis -vis the restrictions which are put on in creating a kind of society that people wish to see or aim to see or legislate to see. And in that context, one can talk of, for example, Ian specifically mentions issues such as pornography and should they be restricted? Should, should there be restrictions on pornography? Should there be issues of, you know, tackling issues of sexual violence, which is very prevalent at the moment? And indeed, if you look at what happens, uh, gentlemen, here in, in the Western world, if, if I could put it that way, is there's, when we look at the cinema, for example, there's restrictions put on particular films. Um, balancing that out, Ian's also keen to hear about the basis of Sharia law in that context. And a simple question, and I think it's something that, that's asked often um, beyond the Muslim world, is should Sharia law apply to everyone? So quite a wide question, but as I said, perhaps I could start with you. This kind of aspect of let's restrict something, let's ban something, and that way we'll prevent that particular act. In this case, it could be, as I said, pornography or depictions of sexual violence, mm -hmm. and we can put an end to it that way. Yes, yes. But I, I guess the first point we should, we should all recognize, that even if religions weren't uh, trying to <coughs> create some type of uh, prohibition or balance mm -hmm. in society, as you say, and create an environment which they project to be a, a more wholesome environment for everyone to, to not be influenced by those things which our natures are saying are reprehensible to us, repulsive. And, and that's going across the board now because, again, if we just stop for a second and say what is currently being banned in our societies, mm -hmm. even if religion has, has not a say, we recognize there are many, many things that we have already as society declared that this should not be uh, allowed in our society to, to be harmfully, to harmfully influence others. For instance, now uh, recently I think smoking has been banned in many countries, whereas before smoking was allowed. Why did we do that? Because we felt it was uh, detrimental to our health. Mm -hmm. And not only the smoker, but the secondhand smoke to the, to the people around, especially the children, they'd be affected by this. So we banned these things, and this had nothing to do with any edict from any religious group whatsoever. It was society saying this was a health problem. It creates in its wake 
uh, you know, millions of billions of dollars of pounds of a health crisis in taking care of such people and affects mental and, 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 and uh, other physical behaviors. So we ban this. Banning alcohol, same thing, you know, a certain age limit below which you cannot drink this substance mm -hmm. because we know it has negative effects. Again, this had nothing to do with religion. The, the bans that are, uh, again, on certain food products or, or other things were used in our, our normal way, banned because we, we've decided in a society these things are also bad for us. Mm -hmm. But then the other step, which our nature recoils against, um, the abuse of, of animals, that has nothing to do with, you know, again, any religion saying do or do not do this. But we've said you in a society, we're going to have certain standards of decency standards of behavior with, with everything that exists in our environment. This idea of the banning of pornography falls in the same view. Religion didn't come in. Our own nature said we can only go so far with this. Mm -hmm. Because if we look at the issue as, as in terms of the legality of it, pornography is not illegal even to be sold to a minor. It's a striking thing, you know, if we actually look at the laws. It can be sold on the shelves in any stores, and anyone at any age can come and buy it. But we as society says, this should not be done. That's what stops the shopkeeper from taking that thing from off the top shelves and putting it down on lower shelves for anyone to see it and to buy mm -hmm. it. And that's what stops a child going to the store buying it, because mm -hmm. people around him will be, again, appalled and, and, and will step back and say, how are you allowing this child to be influenced by something which we agree should not come into their innocent minds at, at a certain age? The same is true in the cinema, the, the novels that you find in, in, in certain, all mm -hmm. these things. We as a group of people have said there's a certain code, ethical code, we believe should exist in our society. And we want to maintain that. And this, in fact, is exactly what the Holy Prophet Muhammad said, said to us. That in, in one tr tradition, he said that uh, if the people don't take care of their limits, then that society in, on the whole is going to suffer. Mm -hmm. So he gave this analogy of, of a group of people who are, are taking lots to get on a boat. And the lots are to find you on the upper level or the lower level of the boat. And people on the lower level of the boat keep going up to those on top and disturbing them to get water and to get food or whatever. And at, at one point they say to them, if you just allow us to put a hole in the bottom of the boat, we don't disturb you any longer. You know, we, we have free passage and you, you, you'll be out of our, you'll be, we won't be a problem to you. But he says, now think about that. If the people in the upper level of the boat allow them to do that, they will all perish. Mm -hmm. But if they will prevent them from doing that, they will all have a safe passage. And in a nutshell, this is what societies are all about. We as a group have to determine what really is harmful or detrimental to all of us as a group, and then try to raise our voices through admonition, through explanation, through you know, discussions, not through laws and legislation for the most part. Those things can come along too, but really it's, we as a people know what is bad. Our conscience tells us, you know, you know, we see, you know, sexual dictations of violent acts. Everyone will say this, this is this, you know, repulsive. Mm -hmm. How can anyone want to see this in society? So we'll, we'll ban these things. We'll say this is the limit we won't go, won't, won't go beyond. And, and in, in this sense, Sharia should not be viewed any more uh, heavy-handed than what society in general does. Mm -hmm. Sharia just comes along to support what is in our nature, what is in our consciousness. That's a moral code. It's a moral code. It's, it's mm -hmm. a universal code. Even, I say, if it's not there, we still, in most cases, would ban many things that Sharia is saying shouldn't be uh, done in society or shouldn't be uh, promoted in society. So that's, that's the, the first step. Uh, last thing is, again, 
Sharia as a, a concept is really become a misnomer. We don't understand what this is. Mm -hmm. As he's asking, will this be something that a non-Muslim now has to abide by in a society of Muslims? It's the same code that every man of God has come to, to, to explain to humankind <coughs> what is God's code for man to live and achieve his best human potential. As Muslims, as people of any faith, we believe in God's laws. We believe in God's codes that he's taught us through the messengers. And we want to see that established. But at the same time, unless you have a belief in that God and belief in that systems, no one is bound by it. Our society is not going to be based on a, uh, what do you call this, a religious system. It will be based on this civic code that we all agree to as a people. And so there will never be an issue where his worry uh, should be founded in a Muslim society where we say this is our Sharia, you follow it. No, we say this, these are our laws as a people that we've come to agree upon, follow that. If you're a Muslim, you should also follow this as your mm -hmm. moral code, as ethical code, spiritual code. But as a people, we always follow the civic codes of a land. That's where it should end. Separation of church and state, basically. That's very clear, not least uh, on the point of Sharia. Um, just on the various points that other subs read, Dr. Sub, <coughs> I mean, this argument in a very general sense against civil libertarians, if you like, and those seeking to impose censorship, as other sub has already articulated, you could take religion out of it, and that argument, that discussion, debate, call it what you may, will still be very much a live discussion. And um, you see, I mean, let's take our country here, the United Kingdom, there are certain things which aren't illegal but distasteful and people don't dislike. And again, moral codes, as I was sure. coming for the program on the radio, I was listening to, there was a recent fire at a dog's home. Mm -hmm. And the moral code of our society here is incredibly, within a day, one and a half million pounds sure. has been raised for that. Because yeah. that immediately people f feel humanity, not ju towards just another fellow human being, but towards animals as well. Absolutely. I mean, society has this innate nature of being, on the whole, generally good. Mm. And there may be elements of bad in that society. And in order to curb those, that is why society itself uh, lays these limits on what is acceptable by society in mm. any society and which, what is not acceptable by society itself, as Azasab has explained that in, in great detail. And this is what we see in general is what religion also promotes, not Islam only, but all religions have promoted peace and harmony in society. And the way it has done this is by curbing such things which may create disorder in, in the land. If we look at these crimes that are committed in, in the world, many a time these are related back to incidents where the limits have been removed mm -hmm. and people have a free hand in all sorts of things, maybe gun crime, or knife crime or whatever crime it is. So these are the societal reforms, societal limits that are, are placed upon man. I'm a great believer in, as, uh, in that sense that prevention is al always better than cure. And if you apply that principle not only to your physical aspects but also your moral and spiritual aspects, then this goes a long way in, 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 in reforming society and bringing them back to a society which itself uh, lays these limits on, on, on its society. And even in this aspect of pornography, then in that case also, prevention is certainly better than cure. And that is why Islam 
and other religions have laid limits which are strict limits in, in that sense. If you look at Christianity as well, Judaism as well, the limits that have been placed in their scriptures on this sort of aspect is also of the same nature and goes towards the same thing of making sure that there is peace and harmony in society. The promised Messiah who was sent to reform mankind also, he actually, as we know, he, he, he was born in India, he was raised in India, he, he lived in India, he proclaimed in India. At that time, the Indian society perhaps had some limits that they were conforming to. But he could see a trend where the women were also beginning to uh, go through uh, modes of undress, as it were. And he, he certainly, at that time, warned society that, look, if you go down this route, then there you will be a slippery slope. So this is something that we should always be aware of. And this is what society has based upon us. And keeping within that mold is what Islam and other religions teach us to do. So pornography, I'm, I'm, I'm glad Ian himself is, is someone who he does not uh, mm -hmm. like pornography. And that also... And he finds it revolting. Uh, he finds it revolting. So mm -hmm. that, in fact, states to us that there are people who have the same opinion of these things as us. And therefore, there have to be limits in society in order to make sure that society is kept free from these ills of society. Man, you saw, is, is said to have a carnal passion when he, is, when he hasn't been reformed and hasn't climbed these, these spiritual uh, ladder. So because of that, he is bound to fall into error if he is given this. So we haven't reached a state where the lamb will lie next to the lion or the wolf as yet. So this is why society is, is bound to lay these limits on, on, on its people. I think societal limits, Jazakumullah, Dr. Saab, is an important point that you raised there as well. And as you were speaking, I mean, I talked about censorship earlier in terms of films, but even if you look at the internet and the explosion mm -hmm. on what's on the, you know, the filters, the kind of, you know, practices you, for example, if you've got children, you know, as a parent, you can put certain tags on there. And uh, coming back to the point, as a Saab wrote, you know, we all are responsible for creating the kind of society we wish to see. I mean, that's incumbent on all of us. It's a consumption, you know. Mm. So we want to have our cake and eat it too, as we say. And you want to consume this, you know, very easy way of, of stimulation and pleasure, which, you th which we think doesn't have any consequence. Mm. But we have now seen the result of is an explosion of the sexual crimes being committed in our society. It's, it's amazing, the, the, the exploitation of the women and the children now. Mm -hmm. I've never seen so much when I was much younger mm -hmm. that I see now in our society. And I think it has to do, in, in part and parcel with, what we are feeding uh, the people in our society in terms of images, in terms of concepts, in terms of just the, the, the whole idea of, of the sexual relations between a man and a woman. Now, what, what is the the sanctity of that or just, the, you know, again, the liber liberality of it to, to do whatever you wish. And it's affected family life, it's affected the human relationships. There are many divorces taking place now because the man's spending more time with that computer, as you say, on the internet, watching and, and, and interrelating or relating with these images than his own wife, mm -hmm. you know, and then his own family. So this is breaking down society on many levels. And in psychologically, there, there's stu studies that show that <coughs> if a man, <coughs> excuse me, a man continues to watch these images, it affects his own psychological way of kind of perceiving the world. Mm. Perceiving the world, which is really, uh, you know, uh, quite unfortunate that this is the age that Jesus talked about, a, a, an age where he said, who, you want a sign? Mm. What sign do you want? This is an evil and adulterous age. 
This is what Jesus talked about back when he first appeared. This is the day of the Messiah, as, as Dr. Saab mentioned. In this age, again, it's an evil and adulterous age we're in. And the, this expansion of these, these mm -hmm. means of doing it, billion dollar industry in the USA, it's more, generates more money than even any other entertainment industry out there. That lets us know how much we are uh, uh, kind of absorbed into it when there are no limits. And why it's important for society to, to check you know, the, the avenues by which this comes into us and, and what would be the be benefits to it. So again, I, I think in the end, I, I saw one comment at the end that you're losing the moral ground by not having everything free and open and being able as a moral person to just make your own choice and make your own decision to not do it as he said he's mm -hmm. done. That's also, that's also correct, that we should control ourselves. But it's also true that every parent tries to protect their children from mm -hmm. harmful environment. Mm -hmm. And every society, every government should try to do the same for their same people. And, and that's what we're talking about. Societal norms are important. Gentlemen, thank you. My thanks also to Ian Walton for your question. We're going to uh, travel to North America, to Canada, for our next question, which comes from Adil Ahmed Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Adil. Thank you for your question and your kind comments about faith matters. His question comes it's straight in, it's going from a very contemporary issue into one of a deep religion about revelation. And his question is a simple one, that if God has already revealed complete faith in all his holy books, indeed as Muslims we accept that the Holy Quran is the complete book, it's the final book, and no new religious scripture can follow after that, why do we need any fresh revelations, Dr. Zaid Saab? Yes, absolutely. We, we, we do believe that the Holy Quran, as God Almighty himself has said, that I have completed your faith this day. And the Holy Quran is the scripture which is the last revealed law of God Almighty that has been sent to mankind. And we believe that there can be no addition or subtraction from the message of the Holy Quran. But that is on one side of the argument. The other side is that uh, what is man's purpose of creation and, and, and what, uh, what is the fulfillment of that purpose of his creation. We, we understand also that the purpose of creation is to have a direct link with his creator or Allah the Almighty through worship and that does not just mean through formal worship at all but in order to have a relationship, a link with someone and with our creator most of all we obviously have communion with Allah the Almighty. And as Muslims, we believe that uh, through our prayers and through our uh, worship of Allah, we have a direct link with Allah without having to go through any other intermediary. So this is the fulfillment of our life, is that we have complete connection with our mm -hmm. Creator, and this is the goal that we go towards. So we believe that Allah the Almighty is still ever everlasting, is ever living, He speaks uh, now as He spoke before. And therefore, he does reveal himself from time to time to those he, whom he favors and those who turn to him. So by receiving revelation, and it may be through dreams or maybe through other modes, Allah the Almighty is, is actually addressing, is in communion with us. And that communion is not part of the guidance, the Sharia, the law that has been sent down to us by the Holy Quran but it is a form of seeking guidance from God Almighty and being shown the path that we should be taking in many aspects of our life. This is the beauty of Islam is that we turn to God Almighty 
for everything that we need. The Holy Prophet ﷺ has said that even if you need a shoelace for a shoe, that insignificant, then you should pray for it. So this is the connection that we have, that we pray to Allah the Almighty for all our needs and in response He communicates with us through revelation. This is an ongoing ongoing thing that we have seen throughout the history but of can Islam. Can revelation, just on that point, Dr. revelation can be with anyone then or is it, I suppose, the counter-argument which some may put forward of no faith or whatever, is that if revelation, or those even who believe, find out, well, faith has been revealed, books there, you've got scholars now of different religions and you've got teachers who give religious instruction. It's their job to keep that revision in people's mind, that reform in people's mind. So why do we still need, you know, what, what, what is a revelation, I suppose, is, uh, is something that should be the question I should be posing. Is, well, know, how do we define it? In that sense, it's a sign from Allah. Mm -hmm. If we are seeking a sign from God Almighty for a believer, that would be a sign from Allah as mm -hmm. to which way one should take. But the other aspect that you, you question and rightly question is that does he only communicate with those who believe in him? No, he, he has the power and he does and he communicates with people of faith and people of no faith. And perhaps they do not attribute that to the Creator because they do not believe in him in any sense. But he does in fact reveal and communicate to, to all and, and sundry. So, so that is an important aspect of revelation of God. But the other thing that you rightly said is that reformers have been sent in every century since the Holy Prophet ﷺ, according to his own prophecies. And these have been people who obviously have been in closer communication with God Almighty, whom he has sent as reformers in order to make sure that the faith of Islam is kept on the true basis in, in that respect. So the aspect of reformers coming in every century has been part of that, and they have received revelation from God Almighty in order to be able to understand mm -hmm. and explain fully the pristine, pure teachings of Islam from which man tends to detract away. Mm. So that is the form of revelation that we have seen and God continues to speak because he is an ever-living God as such. Jazakumullah, Dr. Zaisab, very comprehensive answer there as ever. Um, just as a sort of final point on this, I mean people argue, just picking up on that final element of reformers, etc., that, you know, reformers, why, do we need them at all? I mean, what is the point of having these reformers? Mm -hmm. um, coming back to a, the, our earlier question as well, surely man has the ability themselves to make judgments on this, and if the code is there, a book is there, you know, you, you can carry out, again, I draw an educational sort of, uh, sort of similarity here that, you know, you can do your self-study as opposed to requiring a teacher to tell you what to study or how to study. Mm -hmm. How do we counter that? Well, in, in matters of religion, it's not so simple. Because, as Dr. Saab said, God can reveal himself to anyone he chooses. But that's not normally the case. He will select individuals who become the recipients of the body of knowledge of a religion. And they are the ones who become our guides. And we follow them. We follow them since, you know, eternity. Yeah, they're challenged. Each one is challenged they're, they're, as well. They're mm -hmm. the ones who come and bring us this mm -hmm. faith and guide us and teach us and, and model the behavior for us. Mm -hmm. Over the course of time, we have been taught in Islam as well, for every religion, there is a slight, uh, in the beginning, a divergence from the path, a few degrees, and as it goes further and further down the, down the path, every faith group has had this problem. They've gone so far from the original teaching and the original teacher 
you cannot recognize one with the other. So then God will raise the person, if that group is to remain spiritually potent, to revitalize them and redirect them back to that path. So this is all it is, the same uh, computer. My computer is working fine, all of a sudden it freezes on me, you know, it shuts down, it stops working. I have to hit that refresh button. And this realigns the whole thing back up to original specs, original you know, way of working, and I can, can go forward. That is built into the system. And in religion, the same thing is built in the system. God will raise, in any religion, mm -hmm. people to redirect and reform and refocus the group on the original path. So initially, these could be their caliphs or their successors who do this role. But then they may become corrupt. So now God has to send another prophet, a person who he directly speaks to, that you know, even the, the, the successors are going wrong, so now you must do it. And this is what happened in Islam. You know, initially, it was the caliphs who were performing this role of, of making sure they're following a certain pattern. And then when within that institution, there was corruption. God had to send, as Dr. Saab said, these additional people called majaddis or reformers to again redirect the fold here and there. And when the greater body was so far off that they needed a, a global kind of renaissance and, and reformation, he promised the Holy Prophet Muhammad that he would send a grand reformer who he would speak to and would be this person we believe as the, the promised Messiah. Messiah mm -hmm. And this is the revelation which is very unique, only given to those whom God chooses. However, around them throughout the course of history, as Dr. Saab says, without that fresh fruit, it gets pretty stale, you know? The, the, the eating canned fruit and just, you know, it isn't, it's not the same. You need that fresh, you know? And then you say, yes, this is what I'm talking about. This is revelation, this is God here again, you know? And it, it helps us to move forward. Jazakallah, gentlemen, for that. I, I think when Azhar Saab finished there, immediately when we look at cooking, we all like fresh ingredients in our food, yet when it comes to spiritual food, that's often forgotten, isn't it? But it's the same ingredients, same but ingredients. fresh, so it's not changing the ingredients. And I think that's the point Azhar Saab made very well. And my thanks also to um, Adil Ahmed Saab for your question. Our next question comes from uh, Mashud Ahmed Sahib, and we've just touched on the question of prophethood. And he's asking a question on the Amdiya um, Muslim community's view on prophets and the prophethood, so ancient, you know, as he's put it, ancient figures, but historical figures, revered figures, renowned figures of other faiths. And he's referring specifically to people such as Hazrat Krishna, Hazrat Buddha, Confucius, Dr. Zaid Saab. What base, if any, do prophets <coughs> of other religion, perhaps not, and if I could put it in the context, Abrahamic based faiths um, beyond that when we talk of Buddhism, we talk of Hinduism, do we revere their founders as prophets? Well certainly because when we look at the Holy Quran we, and uh, we read the traditions of the Holy Prophet God emphatically tells us that he has sent a messenger, a prophet to all nations. There is not a people that has not been sent a messenger. And this is only fair isn't it that if there is some part of the world who have not received the message then how are they going to be accountable on the day of judgment so this is why guidance from god almighty has reached all corners of the earth over the period of the entire history of humankind and we read from hadith that there have been a remarkably high number of prophets over the years 124000 124000 prophets you know have been sent in, in the history of mankind. Of these, there are some that have been named by uh, Allah the Almighty in the Holy Quran and in other scriptures. Uh, 
and I think the number is 24 or 25 prophets that we can name by name whose, whose life histories we are aware of. So out of 124,000, 25 perhaps we know about, there is a vast number that we perhaps do not know about, but when we read history, then we find that there are in, in different parts of the world, there were, there were teachers uh, who actually were teaching the same kind of message as it were. Mm -hmm. And from that message we can often deduce that these people were also messengers of God who would have received the same type of message and would then pass it on to the people that they were, they were sent to. Mm -hmm. They were sent as a glad tiding and as a warner are the two aspects of a prophet of God in, in, in any case. Regarding Hazrat, Krish, uh, Hazrat Krishna, um, the, there is a, in fact a hadith of the Holy Prophet wasallam, in which he has said that uh, Hind, the country of India, was sent a dark complexioned uh, person by the name of Kahna, I think it was, Kahna. And that obviously was a name of Hazrat Krishna as well. So in that, in that aspect, we are sure that the Holy Prophet has mentioned Hazrat Krishna by name and we know that that is, that is so. But then there are other uh, revealed, revered teachers like Confucius. Now Confucius, it was something like 500 years before Hazrat Isa salam, so it would make about a thousand years before the Holy Prophet wasallam, and also far removed in terms of geography from, from Mecca. But when we look at the teachings of Hazrat Confucius salam, as we should call him, then he also came with the same type of message and from that we can deduce this, yes, in Islam we do believe that they were messengers of God who were sent with a limited message perhaps and sent only to the people who were around them and that is the ministry that they were sent for. So in that essence there are teachers, there are Socrates we have discussed before was perhaps another prophet of God who was sent uh, to a part of the world. So there are prophets and uh, we have to look at the message and perhaps we can deduce from that that these were teachers, they were messengers of God who came with a message from God Almighty in that sense. I think the Holy Quran does also point out to the fact in, in that essence to yes, as well, yes, doesn't yes, it? The Quran is quite clear mm -hmm. that there are many prophets whose names have not been mentioned. And how do we identify them? So, Hazrat Prophet Islam, the founder mm -hmm. of the Jamaat, he said that you can recognize them, like, like Jesus said, you recognize a good tree mm -hmm. by the fruit it bears. Mm -hmm. And the fruit in this case is it produces a, a wonderful crop of followers that will withstand the course of time because the, the key to a false prophet is he cannot stand the course of time. Mm -hmm. In his own lifetime, he's, he's somehow cut, cut short from achieving his, his uh, stated goals or his spiritual ministry doesn't last. As we see in the Quran, we see that certain prophets have an amazing length of, of life. If you calculate 1,000 years for, for Noah, how did, how did a man live 1,000 years on this earth? It was referring to his spiritual legacy and, and, and again potency, mm -hmm. that this carried on. Mm -hmm. So Hazrat Prophet he said that if we see over the course of a long period of human history, a large number of mankind has followed the person, this tends to be a clear indication he was a truthful prophet yeah. of God. And uh, it's unfortunate that we as Muslims sometimes, I'm not particularly referring to our community as Muslims, but as the Ummah of Muslims, we tend only to accept the biblical prophets or the Abrahamic line of prophets, mm -hmm. the 25 which Dr. Saab has mentioned, mm -hmm. 
and say, this, these were the prophets, you know, the other ones are all spurious, we can't say anything about them. Mm -hmm. But the Quran is talking about one story, a family story, and yet clearly mentions in the Quran itself, as Had, every nation, every people has had uh, a guide, excuse me, a prophet. So this opens the door to the possibilities of such people, and we should open our hearts and minds to consider them to be in rather than being out of the, the noble rank of, of prophethood. And uh, this is... Jazakumullah again for that very comprehensive uh, answer. And it would be true to say that the Amdi Muslim community revives and lives by this as well. Um, having an elder brother who's called Christian, I can certainly mm. be Mashallah. testament to that um, about the importance of other faiths beyond the Abrahamic faith. Um, Jazakumullah, gentlemen, and my thanks also to Mashud Amitab for your question. We'll move to our next question, which comes from Zafar Rashid Saab in Frankfurt in Germany. Assalamu alaikum, Zafar Saab. His uh, question is about non-Muslims. And he asks that if a non-Muslim leads a life of piety and has been a good person generally, will, be, will they be rewarded by admission into heaven in the hereafter? As I say. Atheists, <coughs> agnostics. Uh, well, I'm not going to play God here. You know, that's, that's number one. That's that's the first thing. That's a question. Very, very clear. We could defer it, but uh, yes, yes, it, it will be deferred. Uh, yeah. and, and we'll, we'll all do the answer very clearly. But let's look at the Holy Quran. Of course. For one interesting passage that opens the possibility for this. And again, it's, it clearly states uh, in Quran in sur chapter 2, Surah Al Baqarah, verse number 63. Surely those who believe, and the Jews, those who are followers of the Mosaic law, and the Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ, and those who are the Sabians, who had a different type of uh, religious system. Whoever believes in Allah, or believes in God, and believes in the last day. These being two critical points of faith. Mm -hmm. Faith in God and faith that there will be a life to come. Uh, the result is uh, and they perform good deeds. So here's what the actual question. And perform good deeds. For them they shall have their reward with their Lord. And they'll have no fear. Nor will they grieve. These last two, two uh, words here, khawf, mm -hmm. fear, and, and hazan, and grief, are always linked with those who are heaven-bound. This is interesting in the Quran that this is a reward of those who are heaven-bound, that they don't fear the past and worry of the future. This is a peaceful state. Well, you're in this state, mm -hmm. you know, there's no fear, no worry, mm -hmm. you know, and that's peace, that's, that's heaven-bound. And the reward is clearly mentioned that it's going to come from Rabbi, from their Lord not our Lord or his Lord, he's saying, I am, the, I am the Lord of all of these people and I will reward all these mm -hmm. people and I will grant them the, to the measure of their faith and their deeds. Some of the time the religions try to say it's only based on your faith, that's good enough. And others believe that Islam is all about deeds. I've, I've heard this so many times, that you're a religion of, of, of works, 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 and we're a religion of faith. Christians often say this. But here the Quran is saying it's the balance of the totality of one's life. God looks at all this. Mm -hmm. So there will be questions of matters of faith. Did you believe in Prophet Muhammad Did you believe 
in the Quran? Did you follow these things? Did you, you know, in this day and age, is what the messenger came, Mr. Ghulam Muhammad claimed to be a messenger. What did you believe? These questions would be asked. But that wouldn't be complete exclusion from entering inside this body who gets some reward. Because he'll also look, okay, you didn't have this belief, but what did you do? Mm -hmm. Oh, you, you saved this group of people. You did these good works. You left this wonderful institution behind. All that will count. Whereas you're going to tell me that a Muslim who just goes through life, he's, he's, he or she is a very bad character, you know, dishonest in their dealings, you know, not very, you know, lip, you know uh, industrious in trying to help the nation, doing nothing really of, of good deeds, but has faith, and that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, once a month does his fasting and reads his Quran and says, now I'm going to heaven. Mm -hmm. But my neighbor here, who's been working day and night, tooth and nail, helping people out, he's going to hell, you know? That's <laughs> that, 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 that doesn't seem quite just. So this verse in Quran opens that door, and there are others that kind of support it, which uh, lead to the conclusion that God has always blessed people for faith and for good works and good behaviors, and has always opened than the reward of himself and his love and his acceptance. Jazakumullah. Yeah. Azusab and my thanks also to Zafar Rashid Sahib uh, for his question. Our next question comes from uh, uh, sorry, Saad Ahmed Sahib from uh, Canada. Assalamu alaikum Saad. Um, he's a university student at the moment and like all of us who've been through sort of education at that level, lots of different questions, both contemporary and religious, come forward. Uh, Dr. Saab, he's asking a specific question on the issue of gelatine and consume it. And he, there's a bit of an admission here. He says um, he used to love jelly. Um, I don't know what, it's called jello over in the US, I think. It may be lost in translation. Well, I'm glad to see our Canadians haven't lost the English in them. Um, he's asking about jelly specifically, which he used to enjoy. And then somewhat to, of concern to him was he was having a discussion with other Muslim friends of his and they were suddenly saying well you shouldn't be eating that it's haram uh, gelatine etc is not something which is permissible according to them within Islam for the reason that it may in certain instances contain animal fat and then subsequently the argument goes that it may well contain pig fat now there is you know you how, how far down the line do you go in investigating these things could be an argument present but nevertheless this is a concern expressed by many Hmm. Where do we stand, or the Amdia Muslim community's perspective? On well, this? let me give him an alternative first, By and uh, explain that the uh, alternative the, to jelly. And no. to no, okay, and, uh, well, yes, the, the source of gelatin. Gelatin, after all, is okay. a protein, okay. and it is a, it is processed from collagen, which is present in our bodies, in the bodies of animals, and it is processed by boiling skin or bones and and extracting the gelatin from that, which is used in food products. Now the source of uh, gelatin can be, as I say, from animals, and it can be from bovine animals, cattle, or it can be from pork, uh, from the pig. So there are those aspects of it. There are alternatives to that now that there are sort of vegetarian jellies in which it is extracted from seaweed, from agar, and all the gelatin has the function of uh, homogenizing food that is mixed with it mm -hmm. and, and setting it as a jelly as, as we know it. So if there are alternatives and you feel uncomfortable about this aspect of it, read the label, read from where it comes from, and you will find an alternative in, in that aspect. However, on, on the other side of the argument, <coughs> also we know that the gelatin that is extracted 
goes through a great chemical transformation from the origins from which it is derived from. And according to some uh, uh, jurists, some people of fiqh, there is a, a, a law which is the hala, which says that if the product changes so much that it, it, it is n cannot be reverted back to that original product which is banned in Islam, then that is permissible to be consumed. And that is the case also with gelatin, is that it becomes a chemical product which actually has no bearing and is in no way or shape the same product from which it was uh, derived. derived. And therefore, it is permissible to have that gelatin, and, and it is, after all, a chemical. Mm -hmm. So there is some aspects of FICA law which uh, allow it to be consumed, taking this into account. But there also is uh, an, an aspect of uh, food dietary laws in Islam which says it's halalan and tayyiban. It is wholesome. So if you feel that this is not tayyib for you because it comes from a product which is actually not permissible to you and you do not feel comfortable with that, then there mm -hmm. are alternatives mm -hmm. that avoid it altogether. So that is the argument as far as gelatin is concerned, that it is a chemical and derived from that and no longer is uh, the same product that is banned in Islam. But it, it is not haram as such. It is it not is haram as such but because, is, yes, yeah, yeah, jurists will say that I've it is not haram as I've such. I've heard this myself, that, you know, this is haram, haram. I said, no, it's not haram. Chemicals are never haram or halal. Yeah. They fall in a, a different category mm -hmm. of consumables yes. and you never categorize them as a live animal to be yes. haram or halal, which is blood and the, 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 the dying of its own. And all these things I mentioned is talking about the, the living animals, not the chemical products. So uh, that, that's unfortunate. Again, uh, we've all faced it. I've faced it myself a few yep. times out in the public and enjoying a meal with the family and someone comes and says, sir, are you not Muslim? How are you eating this thing? I said, yep. well, okay, that's your Islam. My Islam <laughs> says that it is, it is halal. But there is this overwhelming sentiment in the Muslim world, anything from this animal is haram. The Quran doesn't say that at all. Mm. It says eating the flesh of this animal is haram. Exactly. And we need to make that distinction. Because you get extended sometimes. Yes, yes, yes. People say, oh, you can't wear that or carry that yes, product yes. Mm -hmm. or use that product. Eating the it flesh of this animal is haram. Yes. It doesn't say using this. It's another, a chemical byproduct. Another, another classic is insulin, isn't it, for di diabetes. Uh, most of the diabetes that uh, insulin that is used by the medicine uh, world is from is from the is from uh, pigs. Right. So that uh, also is some is a chemical, as as mm. a sub says. It is not the flesh of swine. It is doesn't fall in the categories of hurrimat alaykumul maytata wa dama wa lahmal Lahmal khinzir is the flesh of swine, yes. and that, as as a sub explains, is the is thing that is forbidden, yes. and not insulin, that is derived from 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 peace. Gentlemen, as ever, Jazakumullah, both a scientific and an Islamic perspective on that answer to you, uh, Saad, and I suppose my final piece of very simple advice is I suppose you can put jelly back on your menu, um, <laughs> but do check the labels, that's always wise to do. Um, our next question comes from Numan from London. Um, again, thank you, Numan, for your kind comments about faith matters. He's um, putting forward a question on which again in various conversations with friends who and he, he calls his friend a Christi Christian but practically an atheist only I think Noman would be able to describe why he's made that assessment but nevertheless one of the questions or comments that his friends made to him is that on faith matters generally on all questions and discussions about religion 
what ultimately it boils down to is the existence of God, as I saw. And that's the crux of it. Does God exist or not? And I know we've covered this, you know, through answers to other questions as well. Um, but one of the crucial things is, which is asked by atheists, perhaps less so by agnostics, but they also, because they believe in something, but they're not quite sure what that may be, a sort of power source. You know, the classic question of how do you know it exists? And if so, where is God? And, you know, what are the signs of the existence of God? Yes. And, and I know he doesn't want a litany of, of uh, rational arguments to mm. prove that God exists. What it normally boils down to is whether or not we have an experience of, of our Creator, which we in our heart can know for sure this is God that is speaking to me, that is revealing to himself mm. to me, that is showing me as the first word in all the scripture, I am. Any Allah, I, I am Allah, I do exist. And without that experience, it all falls into the realm of, again, just a, a, a kind of a mental gymnastics and then kind of a, an exercise and trying to reason through this, this whole hypothesis that people present that there is a God. So to get to that point, Jesus Christ himself, as well as Moses and all the prophets before him, they went through a path in life that a Christian should say, this is my path toward God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus, after the incident, the cru- crucifixion, this is what he also said. Those who want to be with me have to pick up their cross and follow me, follow my path. And that path was clearly laid out by him to his followers, as was laid out to us by the Holy Prophet Muhammad It is in the exercises that we have been taught that we can find a meaningful relation with God and see how he exists. By first, most of them were distancing themselves from society. They would abandon society and go off into places where nothing and no one was there. Why did they do that? Because they knew God wasn't to be found in the mundane of life, in the normal daily activity. <coughs> that was the stress of life. That was the concern of life. That was the Holy Prophet's, uh, someone, peace be upon him, main concern to drive him away because he saw this isn't producing the inner calm, the inner peace, the, you know, the the sense that I, I found my purpose in life. So he went seeking for that, where he left his comfort of his home and his people and went to a cave. Moses went and finally left his, his family, climbed a mountain, and Jesus went to a desert. Mo, uh, Buddha goes into a forest. Mo, what were they all doing? What were they searching for? It was this first burning desire to be a seeker and, and, and to be found by God, not to go and find him, but to be found by him, mm-hmm. that God revealed himself to these people so the first step in finding God is to have that desire truly in your heart that I want to find God. I want to, I want to mm-hmm. commune with God. I want to have a relation with God. I want to, see, you know, in a sense, sense and feel and, and you know, hear the voice and all these things that we hear about. And not just to read about God, not just to hear arguments about God. I, I want a personal relation with God. And so we follow the path of these who have found God. And we see in the process, it doesn't require you to be a scholar. It doesn't require you to to have any particular uh, mental or, or, or moral or spiritual makeup. Mm-hmm. You start out at the base level. All of them did, and all of us do. Start out with just this simple desire to find God, and then He finds us. So in the tradition it says that if you take one step in that direction, God begins to take steps toward you. And if you begin to walk in that way, He becomes, He rushes toward you. And this is what most people want, will, will stop doing after a while. They get tired in the process. Mm-hmm. They, they make a few efforts, then they stop. 
Hazrat Prophet said, it's like digging the well, you know? Never get weary in this mm -hmm. process of searching for God. You'll dig, dig, and you'll be down 10 feet. At 11 feet is the water, and you stop there. Oh, I didn't find God. I'm going back. There's no God. You know, God, you people are all blind and this, that, that. And they walk away, failing just a few more inches. They could have hit, struck that goal, so to speak. So this is really the common struggle of life. And, and, and I'm surprised that someone who says he's Christian has this attitude that, oh, what are you Muslims saying, you know? Mm -hmm. where, where is the God in, 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 in your faith? It, it means that this person has gone that same way as others who were at the time of Jesus Christ. Religion has lost its vitality, you know? It's, it, it lost its ability to really mm. impart the spiritual life to people, to give the experience to people. And this is what Christ said to the Jews at that time. You're following rituals and rites, you forgot the spirit. You're, you're praying and fasting, but you're doing it all for show. You're, you're saying the words, but you know, you're not doing the deeds that, that are, are deeds of faith. So change your life around. Focus on the inner, and you'll find God is there. I think one of the great Sufi scholars, Rumi, Hazrat Rumi, Mala Rumi, that's what he said. You go search for God in the mosques, and you don't find him. You search for God in the temples, you don't find him. You search for God in the churches, you don't find him. Search for God in your heart. There you will find where he lives, right there. So that is not a philosophy. That is not a, 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 a kind of a rational argument that I'm trying to present. It is the answer to most people's struggle is the personal relationship, the personal experience. When Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi received that angel and, he, and the angel embraced him, and taught him the first revelations, that's when he became a man of God. When Moses climbed that mountain and saw that, that fiery experience that again, the words of God came into his heart, that's when he became a man of God. When Jesus was in that, that desert and the dove of, of God's angel descended upon his heart, that's when he became truly a man of God. Before that, they were, all, they were all seekers. And this is what we should be, always in a seeking mode and be sincere in it. And God willing, he will show himself to, to us and give us, it could be a dream, it could be the sign of acceptance of some prayer. It could be a help of something, some nature. But we will recognize it. Allah says that uh, He will show us His signs and you will recognize them. Mm -hmm. So for each of us, it will also be different. It doesn't have to be that I'm going to see some majestic opening up of the heavens and something dropping down on me. It could be something that just lets me know. And I'm, I'm sure all of us will have these experiences in our own personal lives that let us know that God is there and God is hearing us. God is watching us. God is with us. God is controlling all these things. And it wasn't an angel coming down and embracing our hearts like the Holy Prophet Muhammad mm -hmm. didn't, didn't, We didn't require that level to have faith in God. Whatever it was, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. going to reveal my own personal stories. I'm just saying in every prophet's life, and every holy man's life, you see this is what it is. And when they have this experience, like Joseph, a small child, in his early ages, telling his father, I'm seeing a dream, and I'm seeing these things in a dream, and the father's telling him, don't reveal to your brothers, you know, because they won't understand these things and they may even react against you. And he goes further and the brothers attempt to kill him and throw him in a well. And sitting in that well, he hears a voice of God saying, you, you will one day tell your brothers about this. And it's a striking experience because small boy, he had no way to get out that well. And then suddenly he sees a rope coming down, he's pulled out. You can't tell me that boy at that point in his life didn't have faith in God didn't have belief that God exists because of that experience. So that later on when the woman comes to him and tries to tempt him to have a, a, you know, a, a, a relation with him, 
he suddenly says, no, I prefer to go to jail than to do this because I, I've experienced God now. I, I can't turn away. You know, so this is what I think most people should seek in life more than seeking arguments and things and ask God, you know, beg him as the messengers did, keep seeking, don't, don't lose faith and hope. And he does reveal himself in different ways to each and every one of us. As a sub, my thanks also to our question and uh, Numan Saab from London and uh, I suppose the essence of what Azza Saab said as ever very eloquently is seek and you shall find and that is the essence of the message that every prophet of God has carried. Um, we'll move to our final question uh, for this program which comes from Wahid Amansar from Toronto in Canada. Uh, Dr. Saab, he's asking a question about stem cell research um, and the Islamic view on this. Stem cell research has moved on a long way and it is benefiting uh, human beings and in the treatment and uh, regeneration perhaps of some tissues within the body. Just, if I just, mm -hmm. just very briefly for those who perhaps aren't medical experts, what is stem cell research? Well, a, a stem cell is an unspecialized cell. You know in the body we have many organs and organisms and each of them has a particular type of cell which, it, which they make that up. For instance the heart will have heart cells, the eye will have some sort of eye cells, the brain will have some brain cells. But when, the, uh, when fertilization takes place, the first cells that are created and keep dividing, these are called stem cells because they are unspecialized cells at that time. They are not a heart cell, they are not a nerve cell, they are not a skin cell, but they are cells which have the potential to then develop into these specialized cells and carry out their own, own function. Um, in some parts of the body, stem cells continue uh, to remain there and continue a process of uh, regeneration or repair which continually goes on, like in bone marrow, it continues mm -hmm. to regenerate. So the, 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 the modern research into this is how a, a cell can be taken. For instance, if you have a heart that has been damaged uh, through, through some disease, how can they regenerate some heart muscles to help the heart to re recover? So if you have a stem cell which can be triggered to become a cell of the heart, then that can be obviously used by the heart to recover whatever has been damaged in, in the heart. Now the, the question basically arises is that of ethics. Of course Islam promotes anything that is going to benefit mankind, so stem cells as such, if they benefit mankind then Islam will promote that. But the question is from where are, they, are these stem cells going to be derived? They can be derived from two or three sources. The initial source would obviously be uh, an embryo, which mm -hmm. uh, a sperm and an egg which has been fertilized and before it develops into a fetus, into a baby, then to take away the cells from that and to use that in, 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 in order to make them specialized cells. Now the question of ethics comes into that, that if you're only creating an embryo for taking away cells, and then discarding that in the waste bin as it were, mm. then is that right and proper for us to go down that research? Of course Islam is pro-life no matter what as we have discussed before. So in that respect it is ethically not correct to say that we create an embryo just to be able to uh, help some, uh, someone who has a diseased part of their body in that sense. However now m more modern research is uh, induced pluripotent cells in, in which a uh, normal cell can be triggered 
to become a stem cell and then re-triggered to become a cell which is going to be used. So in that sense, no embryo is going to be used as such, but it is going to be cells derived from another source which ethically is permissible and correct in, in that sense. And therefore, we would have no arguments against usage of that type of stem cell. So stem cell would have to be uh, created from matter which is not embryonic in that sense. So in, 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 in short, stem cell research has a lot of benefits for mankind. You know, there are a lot of diseases which can be helped in, in that sense. And uh, we are hoping that the research will continue on these patterns and go away from the non-ethical uh, forms in which embryonic tissue is used in that sense. So we hope that this will continue and flourish in that respect. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.